your point about test scores, not that I love standardized tests, but when you look at how different countries are evaluated, America is never even in the top 10. We're often near the bottom of the countries being ranked in terms of English and math and other subjects. And so the output of this system is substandard. It is mediocre. I don't want that as a dad for my kids. I don't want them to have this. Welcome back to The Joe Mobley Show. I am Joe Mobley, your host and the original uncloseted conservative. Guys, we have an awesome show for you today, of course, presented by the best career pivot coach, this guy, oshworldwide.com is the website if you want more information about that. Guys, 8 out of 10 people absolutely can't stand their jobs. They feel trapped. Some people even report feeling like slaves to their jobs, wage slaves, a lot of people say. Guys, there's no reason to be that person. No reason at all. If your work is a 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 experience for you, then get out of that career. There's no reason. There are more jobs than people. So your time's worth more and forget about the money. Uh, The money will come. Just forget about it for a second. You're selling your life, your soul. You're spending all of these minutes and hours and days at work. Make it meaningful for you. Uh, There's no reason to not do it. I can coach you through it. something that I've done many, many, many times and I do very well. If I have room in my client schedule, you could be the person to fill that up. Uh, So the link is below to get a free consultation to see if my career coaching and Uh, pivoting ability is right for you. Guys, we have with us a very awesome guest. He's the president of the Libertas Institute. uh, And we're going to have just a really cool and enlightening conversation. We're talking about all sorts of things, education, digital privacy, you know, rights, what are rights? (laughs) Were the founding fathers confused or is AOC confused? Uh, one of those things. The one and only Mr. Connor Boyack. Connor, how's it going, my man? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. Very glad to have you on. Uh, so I know who you are. Tell the people who you are and what you do, and we'll get into it. Sure. So I'm what I like to call a full-time freedom fighter. I run a nonprofit called Libertas Institute. It's a think tank Uh, We basically change hearts, minds, and laws in favor of freedom. I'm talking to you live from the state capitol where we're up here lobbying for a bunch of good stuff and trying to repeal some bad laws with our whole team. So that's kind of my day job. I'm best known uh, probably, though, for being the author of the Tuttle Twins books. These are children's books that help kids learn the ideas of a free society. Uh, We've published over two dozen. We've sold over five million uh, they're published in a bunch of languages. We have a cartoon and all kinds of stuff. So we're out there doing what the schools perhaps ought to be doing. And that is uh, teaching the ideas of a free society, but they're definitely not anymore. And if anything, they're teaching quite opposite ideas. So that's why the Tuttle Twins books exist. And it's part of my overall mission to make the world a better place through entrepreneurship and free markets and freedom. And so both educating families about this, but then also trying to change laws to make it happen. Awesome. So there's so many things to talk about. Now is one of the crazier times in recent memory. 
Um, and I can't, I can't figure out if it's just the media that's doing this, just constantly keeping us on the edge of our seats. You, you think that the roller coaster is going to start, you know, going down and everyone screaming stuff, but it's no, it's just more clicking up, clicking up, clicking up, clicking up. And it's like, good night. Are we ever gonna, is, are we ever going to get to the top of this thing and go over? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm super interested. People, people that are in the policy space, like you, like your institute, how do you go about determining what are the important policy issues that need advocacy, that need, you know, people say win hearts and minds. That's true. That's not a platitude. People need to understand the change that needs to occur. People need to understand the thing that is not satisfactorily handled, legislated, uh, maybe prosecuted if it's criminal law. Um, how do you guys go about doing what you do? It's a great question. Uh, a lot of it is strategy. It's it's every day sitting around going through strategic planning, thinking through, okay, here's this thing that we want to happen. Let's say it's school choice. We want you know to give more families options outside of the public school system. Then we have to review the landscape and say, okay, like who supports this? Who doesn't? Who are the stakeholders? Uh, how strong are they? What resources do we have? How can we best position this to actually make some momentum? Who are the allies that we're going to need? What kind of fundraising do we need to do? What public education do we need to do? Polling and all the rest. So it's just this multifaceted approach where our team is having to think through when we're trying to actually move the needle and like push something forward that's going to be controversial or uh, difficult because there's a lot of opposition. It requires a lot of effort. It requires a lot of thinking, a lot of behind-the-scenes machinations to you know, twist arms and get it all done. And I think that's a challenge that we as freedom fighters have is that so many of us are kind of the ragtag volunteer nights and weekend uh, social media warriors that don't have the ability because of you know jobs and family and life to invest the time required to actually move the needle forward. We're really good at reacting to what's happening. We're really good about commenting on it online and seeing what the politicians and others are doing. I think our movement is not as good at organizing and investing the time and resources, supporting organizations who have the ability to do that, uh, to be the boots on the ground. I can't tell you how many times up here at the Capitol I am lobbying and my team against all of our taxpayer dollars right? Law enforcement and prosecutors and the county clerks and the county commissioners and the city bureaucrats and the attorney general's office. And all these people are up here in the ears of lawmakers saying, give us more, you know, bigger budgets, give us more power, get, you know, let us do more things. And then who's there on the other side? Uh, you know, groups like us that fortunately are able to do it. We're having to go fight people who are funded with our own taxpayer dollars to be there full-time during the session, whereas people like you and many others don't have that ability. And so it's this weird lopsided relationship that we're having to push back against because our our taxpayer dollars are being uh, are fueling uh, lobbyists who often just want more uh, taxpayer dollars. So it's a, it's a big problem. And I think it's been an oversight in our movement where we've not really been too good about investing in the infrastructure that's needed, the organizations, and the people who could be doing this full-time. So having run a nonprofit before and now doing a lot of public, it, it's insane in my mind because I'm like a former security professional and now there's this public advocate version of me, this, or this activist version of me. It still makes me laugh every day when I wake up. <laughs> 
activating people to take action, to volunteer their time, their talents, and and people like uh, viewers of the show probably think, oh, it's easy. People wake up and they're like, man, I want to help Joe with Fight for Schools. Man, I want to help Connor get this, you know, important policy point. That's not true at all. Uh, <laughs> that is right. there's nothing further from the truth. So if you've got any tricks of the trade, I'd love to hear them. But what do people need to hear to know that them, you listening, watching right now, need to be activated to take action? And that action is important, is meaningful. What, what can we say to people to get that across? Uh, well, bluntly, I would say turn off the TV, turn off the news, because so often our attention gravitates and is steered toward the very level of government that we can impact the least. Everyone is outraged at all the federal stuff happening and everything going on at Congress, and they're tweeting about it, and they're, you know, watching news clips about it and everything. And that's fine. Like, we should remain informed and whatnot. But people become extremely disincentivized to get involved and to engage because they're always focused on this national government where they know that the average person can have, you know, little to no impact. By contrast, if people took just a small percentage of their free time and their energy and invested it in local issues, attended their city council meeting, went to the school board meeting, the water redistricting, water district meeting or whatever, you can actually make a massive difference because so few people are involved there. It's much easier to get to know the elected officials. It's easy to get onto a texting relationship with them, take one of them out to lunch, build relationships that you can actually leverage to have an impact, to have them vote the way you want, to have them run a piece of legislation that you think would be helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, talking to your, your promotion earlier about career changes, I used to be a web developer. I came out of college as a computer nerd. I built websites for 10, 15 years. And I uh, realized that my love, my passion is, you know, politics and economics and teaching people. And <laughs> so I had, a, <laughs> I had a massive <laughs> pivot. pivot. I have a massive pivot in my life. And yet everything I do today, I was having a meeting this morning debating a bunch of attorneys on a bill, government attorneys. And, and I'm not an attorney. I just pretend to be one. I, I can hold my own. I, I'm not an economist. I have no formal training in any of this. I'm just a dude who felt called to this work and learned along the way to figure out how to do it. Um, I run an organization with like 86 plus people now. I've never done anything like that before. And so my my message, I guess, is that the average person can make an impact. I was just someone who was persistent about making some change, but I had no formal training. You don't need any of that. You just need to focus at an area or level of government where you can actually make a difference. Because when you do, when you start to get involved, you build a relationship, you maybe impact things, your mayor votes the way you wanted him to and asked him to, you realize, oh, wow, I actually did have a little bit of an impact. Maybe I could do that again. Maybe I could do a little bit more. And that momentum starts to grow until you do bigger and bigger things. But you have to focus where you can actually make an impact, get a win, build some influence. So the problem is that most people are fixated on, on the level of government that they can't impact. So they become disincentivized and therefore they disengage. And I think that's totally inverted. People need to focus where they can actually make an impact. And then together, collectively, that makes a big difference over time. Couldn't agree more. Uh, 100% agree with that. When we're talking about the impact that the individual can have, locals where it's at, states where it's at, regional might even be a stretch, but national 
guys, there's there's very little that you as an individual can do. And that's the design. That's the design of this country. That's what it's weird, but that's what federalism means. Federalism means states' rights. And uh, again, I pick on AOC a lot because these are things that she doesn't understand and she's a member of the federal Congress. It's very interesting. Um, but, you know, one of the ways that we as people are empowered is through this you know, economic engine that we have. And even though the economy is bad, everyone was talking about how the economy is bad. You know, the facts of, re- of life are uh, more millionaires are created during recessions or some people say uh, contractions. They don't like to say recessions um, than in any other time. Uh, household companies, Microsoft, uh, Netflix, um, who else? Trader Joe's, all of these companies were created in recessions and they all did their good to great move during hard economic times. That's because free markets work. Competition works. Meritocracy works. Um, so talk to us about the role of the free market economy and the layperson. Um, and yeah, I guess the policymaker too. But <laughs> talk to us about uh, the intersection of free markets and and the change that needs to occur. Well, I think what we're seeing right now is a cultural shift away from the classical liberal founding father type of approach with, you know, free markets and where government just regulates things in the sense that it makes it regular, it makes it fair and even uh, a fair playing field for everyone to to rise and fall. So now you have people who are decrying so-called income inequality, uh, they want things like equity, basically the forcible redistribution of wealth from one person to another to make it fair, uh, to help everyone, in the words of Kamala Harris, end up at the same spot. Um, this is a you know extremely Marxist approach towards the economy in which some people, the do-gooders, uh, those with you know highfalutin morals to move the rest of us around like pawns on a chessboard, have the supreme intelligence and, and knowledge with which to uh, organize the economy in such a way to produce the outcomes that they want. It was the Nobel Prize winning free market economist, F.A. Hayek, who called this the fatal conceit, a fatal conceit of knowledge in which people think that they know enough to uh, organize the actions and influence the actions of other people. No one person knows anything. There's a fantastic economic term called spontaneous order. Uh, and it originated decades ago from a gentleman named Leonard Reed, who wrote the autobiography of a pencil. It's called I Pencil, a fantastic essay you can find online. And so you read the story of the pencil and he says, I'm a simple number two pencil, but nobody knows how to make me. Not a single person in the world knows how to make me. Why? Because the various parts, the wood, the lacquer, the rubber, the metal, right? All these parts uh, require the intricate collaboration of millions of people working together, right? The, the logger cutting the tree down, he needs a chainsaw. He has no idea how to make a chainsaw. He just buys it at Home Depot, right? And the, the chainsaw manufacturer has no idea how to smelt ore, uh, or build roads, or you know, cook uh, meals, grow farms to produce the food that they all need to go focus and do their jobs. So in reality, a simple pencil is the end result of millions of people working together, often without realizing it. And so that is what's called spontaneous order. It's not command and control. It's not that there's a pencil czar 
saying, we need to make sure there are this many pencils and that you know everyone can have a pencil and that we have equity in pencils. Instead, <laughs> it's the independent actions of a free market where people can come together to produce the goods and services that they want. People, people look at income inequality in totally the wrong way today. In my mind, income inequality is a sign of freedom. It's a good thing. Because if we had equality or equity, if we had forcible sameness, right, that is, uh, can only theoretically be achieved with the destruction of freedom um, and reducing everyone to this low level of subsistence. It's why communist countries are always just mired in poverty because you can't lift everyone to a higher level. You can only crush people down uh, to a lower level. So I think you know, income why inequality... Why don't people get that? That's such a simple statement. It's impossible for the government or a leader or a dictator even to push everyone up. It's only possible to cram down on everyone. Why don't people... Several countries in recent history have fallen prey to this exact lie. Yeah. I think people are easily deluded into thinking that this time is different. Right. Oh, it's not. It's yeah. not socialism. It's democratic socialism. Right. It it has rainbows and puppies and lollipops. It's not going to be like Venezuela or or Weimar Republic or any of this kind of stuff. Uh, fundamentally, Joe, I think the answer to your question is that we have rampant historical illiteracy in this country. I think mm-hmm. most kids are not taught this stuff in school. I think most kids are not taught the destructiveness of socialism and the state the power of the free market, the importance of the entrepreneur. I think the people who largely are in these uh, public schooling institutions are left-leaning. I don't think that. The evidence clearly shows that. And, uh, and therefore, that perspective is being foisted on the public. You see these, uh, these interviews of high school kids being asked basic civic questions, and they don't even know the answers. I think we have historical illiteracy. And then you know the quote, Joe, I'm sure all your listeners do as well. Those who don't learn from the past are doomed or condemned to repeat it. And so that, I think, is our problem today, is that we as a public, as you know, as a society are not sufficiently informed about the problems of the past. And therefore, people are all too willing to recreate them today. That's why we do what we do at the Tuttle Twins. In fact, we came out with a history book uh, just this year, a 240-page history book designed to attack that, that core problem of historical illiteracy and say, if we can focus on learning from the problems and the good things from history, we can build a better future. Uh, not build back better, but in, in, indeed uh, build a, an actually better future. But it requires correcting the historical illiteracy. And so that that's really where we're trying to pinpoint our efforts. Yeah, yeah. I'm writing down so many good, not sound bites, but like these are good principles for living. We do have rampant historical illiteracy. I, man, you're, uh, I got to have you back on the show because this is like... Oh, yeah, that's exactly what's wrong. AOC doesn't know that this is... uh, She thinks that she's extinct. I I heard she said that her people are extinct. She doesn't even exist, Uh, which is, (laughs) man, what I feel like her and Rene Descartes and Aristotle and Plato would have had a fascinating conversation. (laughs) Wait, you don't exist? But you right here, right now, do not exist? That just throws me for a loop. Good night. Uh, well, it's easy to say education and awareness. I used to run an organization. Education and awareness was the thing. We were fighting human trafficking, uh, different 
different kind of bag, but... Um, if you have diabetes and you're on Medicare, you may qualify for a free continuous glucose monitor system. Managing your diabetes is crucial to your health. The new CGM systems can automatically manage your diabetes better for you. And by using a CGM system, you can eliminate forever one thing most people with diabetes hate the most, finger sticks. Now it's possible to manage your diabetes better, end the painful finger sticks, and get a new CGM monitoring system at little or no cost to you. We even provide in-home delivery and do all the insurance paperwork for you. Now is the best time to manage your diabetes better and get your continuous glucose monitor. Call now for details. Call 888-303-9136. 888-303-9136. 888-303-9136. That's 888-303-9136. Paid for by U.S. Med. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork, you know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big, bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-816-4492. 800-816-4492. That's 800-816-4492. How are we going to get this turned around? How are we going to get education and awareness on our system of government, on states' rights, individual rights, free market capitalism, free market, whatever you want to call it, uh, the change happening local, you know, your yeah. your sheriff and board of supervisors and city council people are the people, not the federal Congress or the Supreme Court even. I guess my answer to that is that I'm an optimistic pessimist. What I mean by that is by default, I'm a, I'm a cynic, I'm pessimistic about what's going on in our country. I frankly think that we're on the Titanic, that the course is fixed, we're about to hit the iceberg, and too many people are you know, rearranging the deck chairs, as, as the quote goes. So I, I think that we're in for a bit of hurt in the days ahead. To your point about kind of that roller coaster continuing to click, 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 you know, go up, and we're wondering when we're going to go over the edge and, and go down. I don't know when, but I, I think there is a point at which there is some, like, deep economic and political problems on the horizon. Uh, however, I feel like my role is to grab as many people off the deck of the Titanic as possible, tell them, hey, stop rearranging the deck chairs, get in the lifeboat, right? Get in these little lifeboats where you can more nimbly uh, evade and, and navigate around the iceberg and the chunks of ice you know, falling off of it so that you and your family can get to safety. I don't think that we can save the ship. I don't think that the ship will remain intact um, so I think the ship is is going to have this collision course, but that doesn't mean that every family has to be uh, negatively affected. They don't have to go down with the ship. Uh, I want to save as many people as possible. So for me, 
it's an individual action. It's not trying to save the country. It's not trying to turn this around at a massive societal level. Frankly, I don't think we ever will. Um, I think, I think we have to go through, you know, it's that quote I'm going to butcher. It's like, you know, strong, strong men create good times, good times, create weak men, weak men, create hard times, hot, hard times, create strong men. So I think there is a societal cycle in which we're going through where the good times we've had and all the prosperity has created so-called weak men or a weak society, which are producing the, the hard times that we have ahead. I think society is going in this direction. That doesn't mean we all need to be part of that. So for me, again, it's reaching out one by one to families, trying to get families talking about these ideas, learning about these ideas, practicing more entrepreneurship, saving, investing, being informed about what's happening so that they can make better decisions for their family, no matter what happens in the future. Whenever someone brings up that quote, uh, I, I am a warrior class type of person, you know, there's an ax and an AR-15 body armor, magazines, all that kind of stuff. They're not props. It's because, you know, I, I am the fighting type of person. But it doesn't just mean that. It also means intellectually weak men that can't argue their way out of a paper bag or or put together a structured thought and know that it is true or false. Um, so we're not saying that you guys need to be out there flipping tires and doing pull-ups and, and running shoot houses. If that's you, you're already doing that. <laughs> but, but stop being so easily uh, driven off course by obvious lies. Um, like when the government gets on TV, I don't care if it was Donald Trump or uh, Sleepy Joe Biden getting on TV and saying, we're giving you X for free or Y for free. Guys, the government doesn't have a job, doesn't have an income, doesn't have anything to give you that wasn't actually taken from you. Uh, so you you need to be able to think through that. Uh, goodness gracious. So so much Joe, of let me, is... Joe, let me add something on there because I, I think what that last part of what you said deserves an exclamation point. Well, we have to think through these things more to realize that there is more to an issue than what was said superficially or or said on the news or whatever. So there's an economist named Frederick Bastiat from the 1800s in France. He wrote a fantastic little booklet called The Law. Highly recommend everyone read that if they haven't. It's, it's mind-blowingly awesome about the proper role of government and rights and natural law and so forth. So it's just called The Law, Frederick Bastiat. And he has this quote where he says that a bad economist is someone who looks only at that which can be seen. A good economist is one that looks at things that cannot be seen. So what he's saying is that when we are told, uh, I, I remember I grew up in San Diego, okay? And uh, there were fires often, you know, burning houses down and so forth. And I remember distinctly an actual economist from the local university uh, was on a news program after one of these fires. And he was saying, hey, these fires are actually a good thing. It's a good thing that these fires are happening. Why? Because it's going to create jobs. All these construction workers that then have to go rebuild homes and they have to purchase lumber and they have to purchase all these things. This is going to stimulate the economy. Well, this is a total fallacy. That economist is a bad one because he's only looking at what he can see. We need a house. It's going to create jobs. What he's not looking at is that had you kept all those homes, if there weren't a fire, 
all the existing money from the insurance companies and those families themselves would have been deployed for other things. They would have had a house plus additional stuff that they went and spent that money on. We would have been more wealthy as a society. So that economist was bad because he was looking myopically at what's in front of him. A good economist is someone who takes into account things that maybe we can't see, the unintended consequences, the downstream effects. So when we're told from sleepy Joe Biden, as you say, or the Federal Reserve or any of these people who claim that, you know, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, right, is somehow going to reduce inflation. Well, when you actually go read the bill, when you actually see what it's going to do, you start to realize, as you said, you start to think, aha, maybe there's more to it. Maybe it's more than what they're telling me. Maybe it's more than the sound bites they're using to push for the bill, that this is going to have you know, it's like Obama saying, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Well, that's a nice talking point, but there was more <laughs> to it than that. And we have to realize that typically they're lying to us. And the truth requires us to do a lot more thinking than just believing what we're told. So these days, a lot of people are phonetically challenged. Uh, so if that's you guys, this is the uh, the book. It. It, come, it comes in audio, but uh, I, I know Bastiat might be hard to spell b-a-s-t-i-a-t um and i'll if i can remember i will drop it in the link below but um quick google search it's there on the screen um and it, i mean we education and and not schooling education learning the the unbounded pursuit of knowledge uh is something that will help us get through what i i, I agree i i do think that um, we are inevitable. We are heading off of some type of cliff or over the the drop of a roller coaster or whatever. I, I think that things are going to be truly bad. Um, I think the United States is resilient. I, I think that our form of government will survive modern stupidity. Um, but it's not going it's, to. It's going to be painful for sure. Um, but education is a huge piece of that. Again, not. Academia, education, learning, the pursuit of knowledge is a huge piece of the way forward. Uh, so I was excited when I saw um, on the things that you like to speak about homeschooling. I, I was one of those people that had the big stigma about homeschoolers. I was public schooled and I had a smattering of private schooling a few times. And I went to Liberty, which is technically a private school. Um, actually, I went to GW, which is also a private school. But anyway, I was a public school guy. Uh, my roommate in college, I found out like after we were like best buds, I found out like way into it that he was homeschooled. I was like, oh, wow, you're totally normal. My wife and her four siblings were all homeschooled the whole way. And I realized, oh man, what I've heard about homeschoolers is a lie. <laughs> it's not true. We have four, we're homeschooling. Um, you know, talk to us about the, I hate to use the word new normal, but there's definitely a new normal type of thing happening in in the homeschool movement movement uh, so talk to us about that yeah absolutely homeschooling has tripled across the country uh largely as a result of covid many families have realized that they don't want their kids being exposed to all the crazy happening in government schools and they want something better sometimes that means putting them in a private school but in a lot of cases it's it's homeschool i don't really like the term homeschooling i mean i use it but i don't I don't like it in the sense that homeschooling, the, the true benefits of homeschooling are not schooling in the home, right? Homeschool is this idea mm -hmm. or, or conveys this idea that you're schooling at home. 
Uh, but to your point that it's not academia and it's not schooling, I think true education is, I think you used the word unbounded. It's customized, it's individualized, it's highly unique to each individual, it's spontaneous, it's uh, evergreen, it's lifelong, it's innate. And so to me, the true vision of home education is to help my children thrive in a path that is uniquely theirs. If my son is really interested in guitars, then he should be able to go deep and learn about you know, playing guitars, guitar manufacturing, the history of guitars, music composition and theory and all the rest. If my daughter's interested in horses, right, let her go deep into that because that could become her life passion, her pursuit, her career. Um, and that, I think, is one of the main benefits, that flexibility and education freedom. I, too, am a graduate of what I call the public fool system. Um, I grew up in California uh, in the 80s and 90s. My mom apologizes to this day for not homeschooling me. She said it wasn't really a thing. It was only that crazy you know, kid, uh, the town over, who uh, the family was kind of weird. So there was that stigma and stereotype that you mentioned. But, but yeah, that, that is totally gone. If anything, mm-hmm. you know, the crazy ones are the, all the kids having to go to public school with masks and be socially distant and, you know, all the crazy stuff happening. It's never there, been easier There aren't homeschool. any homeschoolers that believe that they are woodland creatures and need to use the bathroom in a litter box. This is true. <laughs> that, that's called a clue, folks. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I forget the interview that I was watching. Um, it was at a conscious kindness event, um, but I need to find it. It's Dr. Kevin something, and he was talking about the education system and where it went off the tracks. And and he actually kind of was uh, advocating policy to not allow it to go off the tracks and everything that when they were instituting standardized tests and these types of things, and they knew this is obviously going to decrease what happens in the classroom. It's going to decrease the scope of learning. And they, they really traded learning for, you know, trademarked patent pending education. Uh, and it's, I mean, I had a teacher tell me one time that I was right about something being wrong on the test. And she said, no, she said what you're saying, she said, you're not wrong but this is going to be on the test. And the answer on the test is this. And I'm like, what are we doing here? Crazy. (laughs) What? Um, Yeah. There's a related story here, Joe, because what you're saying is not your unique experience. This is happening a lot. And recently there was a group of educators and scholars who got together. They were called the National Commission on Excellence in Education. They spent a year and a half going across America doing focus groups and town halls and listening sessions with you know teachers and parents and so forth. And their goal was to try and put a finger on how exactly things are going in public schools in America today. So they spent 18 months doing that. They produced a report at the end. It was called A Nation at Risk. And in there, among other things, they said this, that there's a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens to overwhelm America's educational institutions. And that if a foreign government had attempted to impose upon America the very mediocre educational standards we have today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, they said, 
we have allowed this to happen to ourselves. Now, quick confession to make. I said that this group was recently doing this 18-month study and issued this report. That is a lie. In fact, it was in 1983. This was 40 years ago this April that the group put out their report and did this study. So if 40 years ago the conclusion was that the schools in America were suffering from a rising tide of mediocrity, I'll put the question to you, Joe, from your experience as a a graduate of the system uh, during that time. You know, what's your observation? Do you feel that things have gotten better or worse since 1983? Oh, much, much worse. Yeah. You, I mean, you can so, look at the test scores alone. Right. And so if it was a rising tide of mediocrity four decades ago, what would we call it today? Probably nothing that would be uh, uh, appropriate for children listening to the uh, the program right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's not good. And that, I think, is among the, the main reasons why so many families are looking for alternatives. The word is getting out that... This sub-mediocrity is not a gold standard to your point. Guys, 8 out of 10 Americans are completely dissatisfied with work, miserable, and they hate going into their job. This is a nut statistic. I can't believe so many people live that reality, especially since there are more jobs than people. That means it's actually easier for you to get into the career of your dreams, to get that dream job. This is something I can coach you through, no matter the company, the industry, no matter your education, qualifications, or experience. Guys, I've built a successful career in more than five different industries. I was always promoted ahead of my peers. I was always put in positions of more and more responsibility and leadership. This is something that I can help you achieve for yourself. Guys, you know and love me as the host of The Joe Mobley Show, and now we can have a one-on-one relationship with me as your career pivot coach. All you got to do is jump on a discovery call with me and see if this is the right move for you to make in 2023 and why this is the best time. Book that discovery call. Go to thejoemobleyshow.com slash coach. That's thejoemobleyshow.com slash coach. Book a time today. Guys, my time is limited. The spots are going to fill up, and then I'm not going to be able to coach you immediately. I'm going to have to put you on the wait list, but you're going to do the right thing. You're going to go to djmobleyshow.com slash coach right now. To your point about test scores, not that I love standardized tests, but when you look at how different countries are evaluated, America is never even in the top 10. We're often near the bottom of the countries being ranked in terms of English and math and other subjects. And so the output of this system is substandard. It is mediocre. I don't want that as a dad for my kids. I don't want them to have this, you know, oh, I turned out fine. I went to public school and I'm okay. Like I want them to have an elevated education experience, not a mediocre. There's nothing sexy about some of the things that would need to happen because like one of the things is the rest of the world doesn't have a quarter of the year off for summer vacation. Um, they're, they're not doing this in Japan and China, um, and, and these countries that are putting out, you, when you said, I laughed in my head when you said in kind of the title of the, the methodology of the study, educate or the pursuit of excellence or excellence in education, because there is none, <laughs> like right. there is, there is none, um, but we, the, the way that we need to go about turning that ship around is 
is huge. There, there are a lot of things that need to happen. I don't think that we need to get rid of the public education system. I do think that we need to get rid of the Department of Education. I think as a, you know, as someone who's been a professional consultant, um, telling a business leader or policymaker, whatever, hey, when you started this, there's been a direct correlation and a steep drop-off of outcome, of performance, of ROI, whatever the metric was, it turned around on this day, this hour, when you implemented this, we got to get rid of it. And it's sad to say, maybe, I don't know, I'm not sad about it, but some people are. The, The establishment of the Department of Education, when you look at the map of education outcomes, success, and how they manifest in reality, there's a direct correlation with the implementation of the Department of, I call it the Department of uh, uh, Diseducation, Miseducation. I can't think of the word now. See, public school, guys. (laughs) Uh, When they put it in place, we started to get dumber immediately. Uh, so got to get rid of it. Well, you can't point to a single education metric to show that the Department of Education has meaningfully improved anything. I mean, so it's one thing to show that it's well, they gotten spend worse. More money. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. If that's your metric, then they've succeeded. <laughs> that's what they say. They say it's got to be better. Look at how much money it costs. Yeah. We deal with that in our state. The teachers are always complaining that they want more money, that public schools are underfunded. And I say, how much money will it take to adequately fund schools? And how will that improve education outcomes? It's not about just you making more money and all the adults making more money. If taxpayers are going to be obligated to invest even more money in these institutions, then that should be tied to an improvement in education, not just to keep things the same, but pay way more. That's ridiculous. And so when you look at school districts across the country where they're spending two to three times the average per student, they're typically at the bottom of education performance. We're talking like Washington, D.C. and New York and elsewhere where they spend a ton of money, but education outcomes are not superior. In fact, they're worse. So simply throwing more money at these schools is not going to lead to any type of improvement for the kids. I think what needs to be done to fix it is that public schools need competition. Any monopoly sees the quality go down and the prices go up. And for decades, generations, these institutions have had a basic monopoly over the education of the young. So we need programs like school choice, education savings accounts that will allow parents to take their dollars to other schools. And I think that competitive pressure on the public schools will force them to knock off all these crazy shenanigans, stop pushing these crazy agendas, get back to the basics of education and educational excellence or the pursuit thereof. But I think it's going to require quite a bit of competition for them to feel the need to reform themselves. I agree. Virginia just uh, put up Bill 1508, I believe, House Bill 1508. Um, They're calling them education success accounts, but they're education savings accounts. Um, And that's the reason people are like, "Uh, school choice is a right-wing talking point and it's going to defund schools and all this other stuff. None of that stuff is true. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, um, you know, if my school is teaching about furries and woke nonsense and Connor school is putting out little geniuses that are going to MIT and stepping out and impacting the world and and getting awesome careers, then parents are going to take their kids from my school and it costs the same. It's the same. They're just taking them 
the money follows the child. So instead of giving it to my crap school, they're going to give it to Connor's, you know, pursuit of excellence school. That's how it works. There's no, there are no funds being eliminated or taken or whatever. Um, and it also makes things better uh, for poorer, underserved communities uh, like those schools. And that kills me. Look up what he said, guys, because it's true. The schools in Detroit and Chicago, New York City, uh, D.C., where they can spend upwards of $26,000 a year per pupil. They don't spend that here where I live in Loudoun County. Um, but in, in more troubled schools, they spend amazing amounts of money per pupil. But the education outcomes are the worst in the nation. It doesn't make any sense. So let those parents take that money and give it to a school that's producing successful outcomes for the student, not the teachers getting pay raises and the facilities getting better or whatever. Ah, it just drives me crazy, man. <laughs> it drives me crazy because the kids are getting screwed. Yes. And that's what, who it's all for. I mean, that's the reason these systems theoretically exist. And yet the teachers unions and others have inserted themselves to demand what they want and to benefit them and extract all these resources. You look at how many administrators have been hired in these schools over the past many years, and it's just bloating like crazy, where before you would have this like ratio of a modest number of school administrators per student or per hundred students. Now it's like quadruple the amount that it was before and they're being paid even more money. So it, it is a big problem. And I think that's why we're seeing the shifts both in support for school choice across the country, uh, but also a lot of families just exiting the system and uh, starting to homeschool. So it's unavoidable to talk about persuasion, persuasive speech, when we talk about cultural movements, when we talk about policy change. I don't know if it's because of the sales profession or because of like things like the art of persuasion or whatever, but it leaves a nasty taste in people's mouths. And people need to understand that if you're not leading somewhere, you're being led. There's no option to just not be moving anywhere, not being led anywhere. Um, and for us to fight the, the war that we're fighting, persuasion is an element of that. It's not a bad word. It's not icky, but winning hearts and minds, getting people to realize the urgency of the situation, getting people to realize that something needs to, be, to happen and that they are responsible for doing something as a part of it. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested what your take is on persuasive communication and why that's important and how we can do it. I, I, I agree very strongly with what you just said, that uh, if you don't understand how to do it, then it's being done to you. I wrote a book a number of years ago called Feardom, How Politicians Exploit Your Emotions and How to Stop Them. And the whole point was to say, you know, here's what the politicians and media are doing to make you scared into surrendering your freedom so that they can grow the government and do all, you know, pass all these taxes, do all these programs, strip search you, you know, go through all your belongings at the airport now and everything. And it's all by leveraging that emotion, by exploiting it. And if we don't understand how these things are happening, how people are trying to take advantage of us or persuade us to do certain things, then we're going to be complicit unknowingly in their agenda rather than intentionally pursuing our own. Another book I'll recommend on this topic, fantastic book called Influence by Robert Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. -I -I. Robert Cialdini, 
He wrote the book Influence some years ago. It is a phenomenal book that walks you through exactly how the brain works and how you can influence people. And he says in the book, he's like, look, this is just a tool. These are the tools of influence or persuasion, as you might say. And he says, knowing how they work, you'll better be able to observe when they're happening to you and then resist other people trying to persuade and influence you. And then knowing how it works, ideally, if you're a good and moral and ethical person, you'll use these tools for positive ends to help people to take action in ways that will benefit them, not to take advantage of them, not to steer them down paths they shouldn't be going, but to encourage them to uh, to take action. So I think those of us who believe in freedom, it's it's our obligation to learn how people think the way they do, what influences them so that we can be part of that conversation and so that we can support people in going down paths that are productive and peaceful and beneficial for them. Yeah, I used to, my first year of the show, um, it's wild to me that this is the third year, but in my first year, I ended every interview by asking the guests, aside from an official Beside from the official religious books, the Bible, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, whatever, if you get everyone to read and understand one book, what would you pick and why? And at least three people um, picked uh, in Influence, um, that, that exact mm. book. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, The Psychology of Influence. Influence the Psychology of Persuasion um, is the mm-hmm. book. So uh, I will drop the links to um, all three of the books mentioned below. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's hugely important. Um, the time just evaporates away. Like I feel, I feel like no one wants to listen to over an hour show, but then I always feel like an hour just goes by like in five seconds. <laughs> uh, but it it's not bad. It's essential. And it's happening to us. Um, you know, propaganda is bad propagandizing. Um, but indoctrination, if you were to get into etymology, that's a decent one to, um, etymologize, to break down the, the parts of the word. Um, because you are indoctrinating and being indoctrinated. I am indoctrinating my four children. My wife and I are indoctrinating them with the biblical worldview. We are guilty, guys. Oh, no. Terrible. <laughs> like, um, and we are exercising our influence, and we are intentionally trying to influence them and the people around us with our worldview, which is more than the Ten Commandments. You know, don't murder, don't uh, covet your neighbor's wife or whatever. Um, it's more than that. And influence is a part of that. And And we're relational beings and we're meant to have community together and speak to each other. So take some ownership of that, you know, uh, take some ownership of that, identify that it's happening to you, get Connor's book and read it like a surprise. Politicians are doing this to you. That's what campaigns about. I used to fundraise guys. You wouldn't believe the type of propagandizing that goes on, on, on every side of every issue. That's the name of the game. I'm doing it. I'm I'm uh, propagandizing, indoctrinating, whatever about parents' rights, about limited government, about uh, my my views about individual liberty. That's what we're doing. It's, it's not bad. It is bad to just let it go on unfettered and be completely unaware and ignorant. Um, anyway, I'm complaining about the time and then I'm taking up so much of the time. Uh, Tell people again about the Tuttle Twins. I am going to, we're not going to play it here, but it's not a secret that we record episodes now. I am going to drop 
um, some promotional materials of Tuttle Twins in the show um, here at the end. And you guys, our children, they're our most vulnerable population and they're our greatest uh, resource. And uh, children are the future. It's not a platitude. It's a, it's a fact. We die, they go on. That's how this works. Uh, cue the the Lion King scene or whatever the circle of life. <laughs> um, but we've we've got to protect our children and promote a, a better vision for the future for them. And Tuttle Twins is absolutely um, on on the front lines of of that. Uh, so tell people about it again, um, where they can get in touch with you, and uh, we're gonna have to do this again because it sure. it's gonna fly too fast. Well, thanks, Joe. It's uh, TuttleTwins.com is the website where you can find the books. We've got books for uh, kids age 5 to 10. That's kind of our main series. We've got books for toddlers. We've got books for teenagers as well. So no matter the age of your kids, uh, we've got a variety of books and curriculum. And we have a podcast as well. We have a cartoon. Um, and so we're producing a lot of material to help parents talk to their kids about ideas that matter. Why is inflation happening, right? What's entrepreneurship? How do we start a business? What's the golden rule and how does that work? Uh, you know, why are individual choices better than collective choices? You know, when the few make decisions for the many, um, so many of these important lessons that kids aren't really getting in schools, they're not really getting from social media and their peers, and so the Tuttle Twins are resources for parents to sit down with their kids, read a fun story. We have discussion questions at the end so that you can learn about the books. You can read more and engage your kids in these ideas. The conversations that stem from this are amazing. These little kids are learning big ideas. And so I just encourage all the listeners to go to TuttleTwins.com, grab a set, grandkids, kids, nieces, nephews, whoever. They make for great birthday gifts and the rest. Uh, because I think that our country is not going to be saved at the Capitol. It's not going to be saved at the courtroom. I think our country is going to be saved at the dinner table in uh, in homes across the country as parents and kids are talking about ideas, developing critical thinking, talking about the issues of the day. I think that's how we save our country. And so Tuttle Twins is trying to be a part of that. Awesome, guys. The website is TuttleTwins.com. Go check it out. I know a lot of you guys are doing stuff. You're not going to be typing this into the browser. We've made it easy for you. All of the links, libertas.org, teletwins.com, the links to those books, they're clickable links. You just scroll down however you listen into this. It's right there in the notes in the description. While you're there, guys, you know it is the year of the podcast. I, I got canceled off of YouTube and I'm not playing that game. There are some clips on YouTube, but I, I'm just, I would love it for you all to leave YouTube forever. Uh, so, Go rate and review this podcast. Don't just say, Joe, you're the best. Connor, you're so great. Tell us something that you learned, something of interest to you in your review for this podcast. Um, and I will enter you into the monthly drawing to get a book. And I have a good feeling that the book that I'm going to give away is probably some Tuttle Twins books. Um, <laughs> so uh, make sure that you go there. Uh, can't promise that they'll be autographed because I don't have any autographed Teletwins books, just mostly political books are autographed. But we're not going to do that this month. We're going to do something um, that's good for the kids because that's good for the country and our future. Um, so go open your podcast app, find the Joe Mobley Show. You should be subscribed. Otherwise, how did you hear this? That, that, I'm very interested to know. Um, but while you're there, rate and review. Type something that you learned, something that you took away from this interview, and uh, you could win a free book. Connor, man, see, the time thing just keeps ticking. Uh, 
this is a lot of fun. <laughs> I've got to have you back before too long. Um, there are a ton of topics that we didn't even get to. And uh, yeah, man, if there's anything that I can do to support you, just let me know. Well, I appreciate Joe coming on and chatting with you. I had a, a great time and definitely let's do it again. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If that was the first prayer you've ever prayed, I hope it won't be the last. Until next time, this is The Joe Mobley Show.